Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of grain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh." 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as you all are probably open to Jude already, um, I invite you to look there. Uh, if you're not there, please turn there with us. Uh, Jude is probably uh, one of the more overlooked uh, portions of Scripture in the Bible. Um, that might be in part because Revelation sort of overshadows it with its uh, symbolism and the weight of that book and that people are often a little afraid of that book. Um, and it's right before that one, so it might get overlooked a bit um, or just from the weightiness of the text itself. Uh, but preaching from Jude could easily be sidetracked with rabbit trails into various academic discussions of like textual criticism, the use of apocryphal literature, etc. But if we focus on the message of Jude's letter this morning, I think we will see the issues that he's addressing are just as pressing on us as they were 2,000 years ago. For Jude writes to a Christian community being attacked from the inside by pernicious heresies and false teachers. And in this context... Jude implores the church to hold fast to orthodoxy, that is right teaching, and orthopraxy, that is right living. And this matters to us as well, fellow Christian, because we too live in a day when sound doctrine and sound living are under assault, not just from the outside, but from within the visible church as well. We live in a day where deconstructing one's faith has become a buzzword and uh, something to be celebrated in the wider culture. We live in a day when the historic consensus of a Christian sexual ethic is under attack and is uh, being seen as at best antiquated or at, or at worst bigoted and worthy of being kicked out of polite society. And it would be one thing if these arrows were coming simply from the secularists, the pagans, the outright atheists. But these same ideas, these same teachings are coming against us from inside the visible church where false teachers who claim to follow Christ are at work. So what are we to do, Christian? Jude writes concerning this very issue and exhorts us to contend for the faith and to persevere in the faith, warning us through various Old Testament examples, which we'll dig into in just a little bit. And so as we actually get into the letter this morning, into Jude's text, he opens with the same way as many other New Testament letters, through a simple introduction in the main body, and then the main body of the letter to follow. In the simple greeting, I think we can find some noteworthy items to explore. First, a quick word about the author. Jude identifies himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. And yet, the underlying Greek word is probably better understood in its context as that of slave. And it's true that every Christian is a slave to our Master and our Lord Jesus Christ. But this language of slavery is still uh, problematic in our modern Western sensibilities. And understandably so, the practice of slavery was a horrific uh, practice uh, engaged by many people. But it was ubiquitous, ubiquitous in the ancient world. It was everywhere. Every culture, every nation essentially practiced this horrible uh, practice. And it is true that God has redeemed us in Christ and freed us from slavery to sin. But the scriptures also teach us that we are now slaves to righteousness, that we are slaves to God, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6. And so I think it would be a blessing, Christian, if we once again envisioned our own lives and our walk before God as one of slavery to Him and to His will. 
Too often uh, professing Christians who would call Christ Lord and lip service do so while presuming upon His grace to walk as they would, as they would according to their own wills. But let us recognize that we have been purchased with a price, a very high, steep, and magnificent price, that we are no longer our own, but that we would live in word and deed as those who are slaves to Christ. Just like Jude. But who is Jude? He doesn't give us much of a bio. Uh, but the text does say that he's the brother of James. Uh, given the simplicity of this identification, this James uh, must have been very well known and is likely the James who held a prominent position in the early church and played an influential role in what we might call the first general assembly uh, in Acts chapter 15. That James was not an apostle, but the half-brother of Jesus, who came to faith after Christ's resurrection. And so as Jude says he's the brother of this James, we then have a Another brother, half-brother of the Lord Jesus who came to faith after Christ's resurrection. And in the second half of the verse, uh, verse 2, Jude switches from himself and begins to address his own audience, who he calls, who says that they are called, and then that they are beloved and kept for Jesus Christ. The called here, um, and I think it was appropriate that we talked about effectual calling for the confession of faith this morning. The called here refers to those who have been brought to faith through effectual calling. In this effectual calling, God reveals the misery of sin, grants the knowledge of Christ in the gospel, renews the will, and brings to saving faith in Christ. We know it's referring to effectual calling because Jude says of these who are called that they are beloved in God and kept for Jesus Christ, which we could certainly not say of those who are not of God's elect, those who have not been effectually called. And as much as our new identity is in Christ is that of slave, it's equally true that we are loved as Jude here calls the audience the beloved. We cannot come away from Scripture without seeing the overwhelming love of God that He has for His people, for His redeemed. The very fact that we are called the children of God demonstrates His great love for us and adopting us into His own spiritual family. But it's not just that we are beloved, but we are those who are kept for Jesus Christ, as the text says. Now the word kept in the Greek is in the passive voice, and this means that it's referring to something being acted upon, not the one doing the acting. So in other words, these who are called beloved believers are those who are being kept. Those whom God is keeping and holding for Christ. Their salvation is secure because it is not up to them to keep themselves, but as John's Gospel says, we are being held and none can snatch us out of God's hand. As it's true of Jude's audience, it's true of us, fellow Christian. We are being kept for Christ. We are being kept for Him because He purchased us with His own blood. And we are being kept for Him on that great and glorious day when we will be with Him forever. As we continue in Jude's letter, we're going to see that this idea of being kept is a very central theme of the epistle. And while we see that God is keeping us, Christians, for Himself... We're going to see that there are others who are being kept for a very different and very much a less desirable end than our own. And we'll talk about that as we go on. Now as Jude prepared to write to these believers, we saw in verse 3, as we read earlier, that he sought out to write initially about their common salvation. And yet other factors providentially hindered him from writing that letter, which may have been a much more cheerful letter in some respects. But the text says that he found it necessary to write to them to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. 
And the word translated to contend refers to, uh, in original the language there, would have referred to athletic competition or would have also been used in the context of war. And we see then that Jude is exhorting these believers to be diligent in holding to the faith that's been delivered to them. If we think of athletic contests or wartime efforts, we know that those who are slack and unprepared often fare quite poorly in these uh, events. Such as these cannot expect to win the victor's crown. Feats of athletic and wartime triumph are often and always preceded by diligent efforts and detailed preparation. When I was in high school, I was fortunate enough to play on a football team that won a state championship. And on that team, we had a lot of guys, much more talented than myself, uh, who had a lot of physical talent. And that would have been very obvious to those who had watched them play and just saw their physiques and etc. But what would not have been as easily seen were the times when we gathered at 6 in the morning to lift weights three times a week uh, through the course of the summer. They wouldn't have seen us practice in 90, 95 degree heat twice a day in the summers. They wouldn't have seen the laps that we ran around a lake uh, in our hometown or the sprints in the beach or the sprints up the hillside to build our conditioning. And all of these efforts eventually paid off for us in the end through the winning of the state championship. But how much more, brothers and sisters, when Jude calls us to contend for the faith, ought we to give every effort to hold fast to it once for all handed down to us? And so we might ask, what is this faith that we're called by Scripture to contend for? Since the word faith has the definite article, the, in front of it, we, we see and understand that this is a body of belief that is encompassed in the doctrine in the gospel and in the scriptures. It's a bit of a mouthful, but I think we would do well to consider the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, in other words, Paul has in mind the gospel as it was delivered to him. Additionally, we could think of other creeds. Uh, though it was formulated centuries later, we might think of the doctrines contained in the Apostles' Creed, which represent the lowercase c Catholic teaching of the church. The point is, brothers and sisters, that we are not innovating the faith or reshaping it to our own modern ideas or our own whims and desires. Rather, we receive the faith that has once for all been handed down. God has revealed this faith progressively through the uh, Old Testament and sent His Son as the final word to us. The apostles then, as Christ's chosen and chief expositors of the faith, hand it down after them. So often I think that modern American evangelicals get a little uh, cringy at the thought of tradition. Of any kind. And in part, I think this is a, an appropriate reaction in our ongoing protestation against the Roman Catholic Church, which has elevated tradition as an equal authority to Scripture, which is uh, certainly grave error. But tradition itself isn't a dirty word. So far as tradition, as we see it in this sense, is in accord with and founded upon sacred Scripture, we should happily stand in the tradition of the apostles and the lowercase c Catholic Church and its teachings. We have not received a new faith. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, as it were. But on the contrary, our roots as Presbyterians go back through the Reformation 
our historic creeds in Westminster, certainly. And those go back through the early church fathers, which go back through the apostles, which are going back through the prophets and patriarchs of the Old Testament. The one covenant of grace throughout the ages. While I was in school, a professor once offered a helpful proverb, I think, concerning theology, which so often holds true. And he said this, if it's new, it probably isn't true. We have no right to alter or change the faith that we have received, since first and foremost, the faith is from God, who has ordained it and given it to us through his chosen messengers. If we believe, as we would confess, hopefully, that Christ is truly building his church, that he's truly preserving his people, then we will recognize that we don't need to change the message. The faith that has been handed down to us is apostolic. It is fixed, and it's what Jude calls us to contend for earnestly, as the church finds itself in the world and in the midst of arrows and divisions and heresies. We're called to contend for this apostolic faith given to us once for all, never to be changed. So having instructed the reader to contend for the faith, Jude tells us why in verse 4. And I'll just read that again for us for just a moment. He says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the church then must contend for the faith because false teachers have snuck in unnoticed. False teachers are an ever-present reality for the church. The New Testament is full of warnings against them and against their teaching. And indeed, many of the New Testament letters are actually responses to false teaching or false practices in the early church. And contrary to the warnings that we see in the New Testament, uh, in much of the visible church today, it has become taboo to address false teaching, lest one be labeled divisive, arrogant, or the worst thing we could call someone intolerant. And yet such an atmosphere is fertile ground for peddlers of false doctrine. If we won't call it out or we won't address it, it metastasizes, it grows. And notice, too, that these false teachers in Jude's day snuck in unnoticed. And here we see the pernicious nature of false teachers. If someone came into our congregation's uh, faithful churches and began to teach explicit heresy, they would be identified and swiftly dealt with by faithful shepherds. And so because they can't do this, we see that they come in wearing sheep's clothing, wolves in sheep's clothing, as the scripture tells us. They come in veiled in Christian-sounding speech in order to gain a foothold among God's people. And that shouldn't surprise us, brothers and sisters, for scripture says that even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. And the false teachers that we see in our text this morning in Jude's audience were teaching a very specific error. They were perverting the grace of God into immorality, or as Jude says, sensuality, and denying Christ as master and Lord by their doctrine and their deeds. Those heresy would likely fall under what we call antinomianism, which, big word, but comes from two Greek words meaning against law. And so their teaching then was, now that essentially that we're under grace, we don't need to concern ourselves with keeping God's moral law. We have an abundance of grace, and therefore God has no commands, or we have no obligatory reaction to God's law. Presuming upon the grace of God to justify their breaking of God's law. 
especially, Jude says, by sensuality. And the Greek word there translated sensuality refers to indulging in egregious sexual immorality as would have even been uh, a blight on the wider culture as a whole. And so we read an ominous warning then concerning these individuals that have snuck in unnoticed. Jude says they were long ago designated for this condemnation. Now as I first read this in preparing uh, for my message for the sermon, it seemed to me that Jude may have been referring to something along the lines of reprobation, right? The opposite of election, but sort of this idea of reprobation. Uh, but really though, I think as, you, as I studied this out, the, really the idea there is a, the word designated referring to something that was uh, official public and a public decree of condemnation. So in other words, judgment has been decreed long ago for those who would do what the false teachers were doing then and do now. And where do we see this? Jude points us to the scriptures of the Old Testament. Indeed, our Christian scriptures to prove the case that these false teachers will be judged. He could have simply cited numerous references from the Old Testament where God spoke swiftly and strongly against false teachers and false prophets, but he does this by identifying specific examples which would have been uh, very poignant reminders in the collective memory of the people. We have a similar sort of thing in our history as Americans. If someone were to mention Benedict Arnold, John Wilkes Booth, Watergate, right? these are immediate things in our memory that we think and associate with negative connotations that bring up a certain uh, emotional response, but also a very strict warning that these were not guys to follow after. right? And so Jude does this as well with the false teachers. He highlights in this first example, or this set of examples, three infamous moments from Old Testament history. And first we see the sin of unbelief. I'll read verse 5 for us again. It says, And I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now a quick note, uh, some of your translations, if you're not using the ESV, might say the Lord instead of Jesus. And this is one of those areas where we could get very lost uh, in textual variants and such like that. But I do think Jesus is the correct choice. And so we see here the reality that Jesus' Son, the second person of the Trinity, is active in the Old Testament and is indeed Yahweh, a great text showing us the preexistence and the divinity of Christ. And for Jude's point, he's highlighting how Jesus saved the people out of Egypt, right, the Exodus, but later on destroyed those who did not believe. And while there's some debate about the specific reference, he seems to be referring to the people of Israel's unbelief and listening to the spies who gave a bad report about the land, as opposed to listening to Joshua and Caleb's report about the land, that they could indeed take it, for God was with them. As a result... The unbelieving generation grumbled against God and brought uh, and his bringing them out of Egypt. Why would you bring us out of here to die in the wilderness? Couldn't we have just died in Egypt? We had food there, right? We could have at least enjoyed our death a little bit more. And so they grumbled against God. And for this, God declared judgment against them for their unbelief and forbid them from entering the promised land. Right? So not exactly a great example you'd want to be a part of. And so that's Jude's point. The second example focuses on the angels who did not stay in their proper sphere or their domain or their authority. In my view, this is a reference to the fallen angels who rebelled against God and rebelled with Satan and were cast out of heaven. 
And as a result, God has kept these fallen angels in eternal chains under darkness until the day of the Lord where he will judge all things. And where these angels will stand before God's judgment seat, where they will not hear a very good verdict. And this is the second time, as Jude refers to these angels, that we see this idea of being kept. Right? He says, He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And again, we'll return to this theme a little bit later. So first we see in our text that God judged unbelief. And in the second illustration, we see that God will judge rebellion against His authority. In the final example, Jude highlights another sin which received God's judgment, that of sexual immorality. And Jude brings up here the infamous Sodom and Gomorrah upon which God rained down fire from heaven. And in this example, Jude references unnatural desire, which the people of Sodom and Gomorrah pursued. And in conjunction with the Old Testament background in Genesis 19, this is a clear reference to homosexuality, which is, as Jude says, unnatural because it goes against God's created order and against his design for mankind. Now certainly, as Ezekiel tells us, uh, the book of Ezekiel, Sodom sinned in many ways, through their uh, inhospitality, their greed, etc. But scripture is quite clear, both here and in Genesis, that Sodom and Gomorrah received judgment for their indulgence in uh, in homosexuality. And in contrary to what our increasingly hostile culture would say, God has unequivocally declared homosexuality to be sin both in practice and desire. And for those of us who would claim to be Christian, we could hold no other position lest we turn God into a liar. But for Jude's point, again, he's using the destruction which God sent upon these cities and the surrounding cities uh, for their immorality because it serves as an example of what the future eternal punishment will be like, namely that of eternal fire. So in these first three examples, Jude's laid some initial groundwork for us. And in verse 8, he begins to connect these judgment narratives to the false teachers and he ratchets up the polemic a few notches. Even as uh, we were reading the text earlier, you can even feel the weight as Jude begins to heap uh, upon these false teachers uh, various uh, uh, polemics and these sorts of things. And in verse 8, Jude refers to these false teachers being dreamers or those who rely upon their dreams. Either way, it's a little bit, uh, you could go either way with it. But the point is to show that these false teachers are relying upon supposed revelation given in their dreams as support for their teaching. Now we know at times that God in the Old Testament and elsewhere, even in the New Testament, we see in the life of Joseph, uh, uh, Jesus' earthly uh, father figure as it were, uh, that dreams were given to help aid God's people. Yet Jude's addressing false claims to this divine revelation. And I think here the words of the prophet Jeremiah are very helpful, uh, who wrote essentially an entire chapter against false teachers and false prophets in his own day. But one section especially uh, is relevant for us as we consider Jude's words to these dreamers in our passage this morning. Jeremiah chapter 23 says this, beginning at verse 25. I have heard what the prophets, this is God speaking, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies, and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? 
Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness, when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. God takes very seriously those who would lie and prophesy in his name when he has not sent them. God will not overlook the breaking of the third commandment by taking his name in vain to say what he has said when he has not said it. And these false teachers are guilty of this charge. They've relied upon their dreams as sort of revelation, as sort of a proof for their teaching. And yet they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme, that is, slander the glorious ones, here referring to angels. As Jude says, even the archangel Michael would not dare to slander or blaspheme Satan, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these false teachers dare to slander angels, and unlike unreasoning animals, speak of those who are sort of greater beings than themselves, easily slandering them and pronouncing all sorts of false teaching. And against these men, Jude stands in the tradition of the prophets, who came before him and pronounces woe against them. He is calling down judgment upon them for their, uh, for their sin, for their false teaching, just as we saw in the other examples a moment ago. And why does Jude do this? We see in verse 11, woe to them. Again, a very typical prophetic statement we see all throughout Scripture. Jesus used it as well. And we see the reason for this with the word for. For they walk, that is the false teachers, in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So again, Jude here in the text is comparing these false teachers to three of the most infamous characters of the Old Testament. In Cain, we see the sin of unbelief, since in Hebrews chapter 11, we see that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he offered it in faith. The implication there being Cain's was deficient because it was not offered in genuine faith. In Balaam, we see the sin and the love of gain from wrongdoing. And furthermore, Revelation chapter 2 says that Balaam taught Balak to cause the Israelites to sin and stumble by eating food sacrificed to idols and by practicing sexual immorality. And finally, in Korah, we see one who rebelled against God's anointed leadership and ultimately through that against God himself. And you may remember that it was Korah who, and those who followed him who were swallowed up when the ground opened before them and God punished them by swallowing them up into the earth because of their rebellion. So we see these sort of these kind of these similar sins, right? We see the sin of unbelief, we see the sin of rebellion against God's authority and sexual immorality, which bear a similarity to those examples mentioned before in the opening verses. But Jude's point here is that the false teachers in Jude's day are an extremely bad company with a poisonous spiritual heritage. Such men will face the wrath of God for they are unbelievers. They reject God's authority and they follow their own evil and lustful desires. And so Jude uses these examples, bringing up these collective memory, uh, very pointed examples to warn these Christians against following the false teachers, against joining the company of these wicked men. And this is why they and we today 
must contend for the faith because evil men would destroy the faith and our faith if they could. Jude continues his diatribe against these teachers. Uh, If I may note, Jude would certainly be in trouble with those who are concerned about uh, tone or with these sorts of things or being winsome because he's none of those things here. Because his concern for the Christians are trumping any concern he might have for the feelings of the false teachers at this moment. He calls them hidden reefs at their love feasts. Love feasts would have been communion meals among believers that they would have gone to, probably similar to some of our uh, feasts that we have, say fellowship meals with the addition of the Lord's Supper. But the imagery of hidden reefs is so pointed for Mediterranean and seafaring people, right? I think sometimes in the Midwest, as you might have noticed, we're a bit landlocked. Uh, Not a ton of water and open sea around us. And so we can sort of lose some of the weight of the imagery that Jude is using here. But imagine for a moment that you're on a sailing vessel coming into a harbor. When all of a sudden your ship is rocked because it struck a reef that was unknown to the, the captain of the ship. That's striking the reef and its hull is torn apart. It takes on water and sinks into the harbor. If Jude were writing today, he may have used the image of the Titanic striking the iceberg, right? A similar idea. Uh, Boats hitting objects in open water, unseen, are usually not very, uh, stories that end very well for those involved. And is it any wonder that Jude would use such an illustration, giving the New Testament's warning elsewhere about people's faith being shipwrecked? These false teachers, rather than leading people to eternal life, actually shipwreck faith and lead to eternal damnation. And alas, Jude is not done yet. Uh, He offers a flurry of metaphors to describe the false teachers, saying they are like shepherds who shepherd themselves rather than the flock. They care for their own needs rather than the flock, God's people. They are waterless clouds, which give the appearance of offering life-giving water to a dry and thirsty land, and yet, in fact, pass by without an ounce of rain to nourish the ground or to give thirsty people water to drink. They are fruitless trees in autumn when the harvest should be taking place. And hearing this image, we recall the story of Christ who cursed the fig tree. The fig tree demonstrated all the outward signs of bearing fruit, and yet upon inspection had none to offer to the Lord. And so, as a result, Christ cursed the fig tree and it withered up and died. And these false teachers are likewise fruitless trees, which though they seem to have an appearance of fruit, have none, will also receive the curse of Christ's judgment. They are wild waves of the sea, as Jude says, casting up the foam of their own shame for all to see. And as one commentator notes, likely this means a reference to their immorality, which was on display for all to see. They are wandering stars, which contrary to the fixed stars in the heavens would have offered no sure guidance to those who would have navigated by them, whether by land or by sea. But rather they would lead travelers astray and into danger. And so God, speaking through Jude's letter, pronounces the same judgment upon these men that we saw in verse 6 of the angels, that they too are under the gloom of utter darkness being reserved for them forever. Now Jude ends the, uh, nears the end of the polemic against the false teachers by citing an excerpt from the book of Enoch. Again, which, as I mentioned earlier, we could get lost into discussions about apocryphal literature. But I think that would uh, derail us unnecessarily this morning. The uh, book of Enoch is not included in our uh, text of scripture, not in the canon. 
But it's enough to say that Jude's citation of this book doesn't give inspired status to the entire book of Enoch. But rather, on occasion, biblical authors will cite material outside of Scripture, like a Greek poet, for example. And it shouldn't bother us, since the Bible does not claim to contain everything in the world that is true. Consider mathematics, right? We won't find geometric equations in the Scriptures. But rather, everything in Scripture is inspired and errant and true. And so without granting inspired status to Enoch, Jude's inclusion of the the prophecy is enough to see that it's inspired and true. With all of that said, the point of Jude's citation is clear, that Christ will return with the myriad and thousands of angels to execute his judgment upon the ungodly who have spoken harshly against the Lord of hosts. If these sinners never come to repentance, all of those who have slandered Christ, all of those who have mocked Him, all of those who have blasphemed Christ, all those who have taken His name in vain, and indeed anyone ungodly by God's standard, not our own, shall endure the unmitigated wrath of God. Elsewhere, Paul says the same thing in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 when he says this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And this wrath, this dreadful wrath, is the destiny of every unrepentant sinner. Having fully exposed the false teachers for what they are and who they are, Jude warned the Christians, those early Christians, of the false teachers' impending judgment. And he calls his audience to remember the words of the apostles, those who are true teachers. The apostles, as I mentioned earlier, were Christ's chosen representatives chosen by himself to hand down the faith, this holy and apostolic faith. As one commentator notes, it's important to see the contrast between the false teacher's counterfeit revelation and the apostles' true, genuine revelation given to the apostles by Jesus himself. And Jude reminds us that the apostles predicted the coming of such teachers, such scoffers, as Jude says, in the last days, who would follow their own lusts. Since, per Hebrews chapter 1, the last days began when Jesus was ministering in the earth, or on the earth, we should therefore not be surprised when we see such people, those who would scoff at God's truth, those who would slander Him, and those who would teach things which are contrary to His word. Jude says these wicked men are worldly people, not having the Spirit. In other words, these false teachers are not genuine Christians. It's not just that they sin, even Christians still do that. I still sin, you still sin, we all still sin. But rather, these false teachers lack the Spirit. That is, they lack the indwelling of the Holy Spirit common to all believers. They have never been granted spiritual birth through regeneration, through new spiritual life. They may know to speak with Christian language. They may know the right things to say. They might know the right uh, things to do. But they do not know Christ, nor does He know them. And being faced with such treacherous men, Jude issues a call to perseverance. And he provides the roadmap to contend for the faith. And he does this through a series of imperative statements, through commands as it were. 
And I have six here listed out from the text. He says, build yourselves up in the faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, wait for the mercy of Christ unto eternal life, have mercy on those who doubt and save others from the fire. Unfortunately, I don't have much time to go into any of these in depth because I, and what I'll chalk up to youthful ambition, decided to preach the entire book of Jude in one sermon. Uh, But I will just make some quick comments. Uh, Jude here encourages us to build ourselves up in the faith and to pray in the Holy Spirit. You see, we must be strong in the faith. We must know what is true. We must also know why we believe it. Grounded on Scripture. So that we won't be easily deceived and led astray by false teachers and by false teaching. Contrary to the heretics who don't have the Spirit, we are to pray in the Spirit. And that is, that is to say, with the Spirit's enabling and in accord with the will of God. For this is something the false teachers cannot do. They can't pray by the Spirit's enabling or in His will because they don't have the Spirit. Additionally, we should have mercy towards those who doubt. And we ought to save others from the fire. And to do this, fellow Christian, will require boldness, love, and truth. We must contend for the faith because, those, because of those who might be enticed away from the apostolic faith by those who would bring in uh, destructive lies and secret heresies. A false gospel can save no one, Paul tells us in Galatians 1, and pronounces their judgment upon those who would bring a false gospel. Because false gospels lead only to damnation and eternal fire. Now a moment ago I left out one of the final imperatives from that list of six. That is to keep ourselves in God. Certainly Jude wants us to keep the faith. He doesn't want us to apostatize like the false teachers. But our being kept is ultimately not up to us. As we read earlier in the text, we are being kept. Passive voice for Christ. And in verse 24, Jude praises God saying that he is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless in the glory of God. You see, no true Christian can fall away from the faith or be deceived into losing their salvation by false teachers. Not because the Christian is so great or wise, but because the Lord is keeping us for himself. He is the great one who holds us. I mentioned John's words earlier, but I'll just read that again. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. We have the promise of the Lord that none can snatch the true believer from God's saving hand. And rest assured, Christian, just as God the Father is able to keep the angels who sinned and the false teachers who are spreading false teaching for judgment so that they cannot escape it, so too he is able and faithful to hold and keep you and me from stumbling that we would dwell with him forever. So again, we see this idea of being kept central to the idea of Jude's letter. That we are kept, the false teachers are kept, our end is good, their end is not so good. So brothers and sisters, I think that in many ways the message of Jude is quite clear to us. It is a call to contend for the faith that has once for all been handed down to us. Again, we're not innovating the faith. When false teaching arises, and it will, remember the predictions and the words of the apostles 
and remember their teaching. Do not walk in the way of Cain, into the sure destruction of apostates and the other infamous examples given to us in Scripture, but hold tight to Christ, for He is holding you. Do not allow the pervasive teaching of antinomianism in our own culture that says we have so much grace we need not worry with God's law, His moral law. Don't allow this to take root in our heart or our minds. It is true that we are not under law in relation to our justification, that is, our being seen as righteous in God's sight. Because none of us can do good enough or be good enough or do enough good things, right, to earn righteousness in God's sight. But rather we're justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it remains true that God's moral law, again summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, is our rule and our guide for growth and godliness. It's our law and our standard for growth and sanctification and growth in the Christian life. So let us, fellow believers, not claim Christ with our speech, but deny our Master and our Lord in our deeds. Let us not be swayed by those who tell us we can have a Savior without actually recognizing His Lordship over our lives. And lastly, I just want to address any who may be listening today who do not know Christ. I have said much about God's law and our obedience to it, much about false teachers, eternal punishment, and eternal life this morning. Surely weighty matters before us. If you are here today and do not know Christ, I hope that you would see your desperate need for Him this morning. While, we may not, while you may not be a deceiver like those whom Jude is talking about with the false teachers, the reality remains that you have sinned against a perfectly just, holy, and righteous God. God can't allow sin to go unpunished, lest His justice and righteousness be called into question. Because of this incurred penalty, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the wrath of God upon Himself on the cross in the place of sinners, dying to make payment for their sins, to satisfy God's justice and to rise again from the dead. I implore you to repent of your sins against God. If you are here this morning or listening and don't know Him, trust in Christ's sacrificial and sufficient work and follow Him. If you don't, your part shall be in the punishment of eternal fire, in, as we saw pictured in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rest of the wicked examples we've heard about today. Come to Christ and be saved from the wrath of God and experience the joy and wonder of being in right relationship with Him. This won't mean that your life will get easier or better, and on the contrary, it'll actually become much more difficult. We are called to die to ourselves and to follow Christ even unto death. But we who have come to Christ eagerly await eternal life with Him. We look forward to His mercy on that great day and enjoy even that fellowship now in part. And because He is able to keep us and because He has made us partakers in such a great salvation, we say with Jude that to our God, our only Savior, belong glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word to us this morning. And indeed, we've heard weighty words from uh, your inspired author of scripture, Jude. Lord, help us to contemplate them. Lord, let us hear them. Let us flee from false teaching and let us cling to Christ, knowing that you hold us and that we cannot be snatched from your hand. For you have promised us this in your word and we have it on the sure foundation of that promise. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us. Its entrance and unfolding brings light and understanding to the simple. 
We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.